because they so revered it. I'm talking about our God, our living God, our creator. Amen. We talked about him last week. I looked out across the crowd and it just seemed like we have a little bit too long of faces for my liking. Is God affected by circumstance? Why? <laughs> That's right. He exists outside of circumstance, doesn't he? Hallelujah. You know, and I think about the psalmist of old, and he talked about whenever his soul was vexed, what would he do? Encourage himself in the Lord. And I tell you, the, the simplest way you can encourage yourself is to release the life of God that's inside of you and praise unto him. And I've just got a song rolling around in my heart this morning, and I'm not a vocalist, but you all can help me out, can't you? Can we encourage ourselves just a little bit longer this morning in the Lord? Hallelujah. And it's a song that speaks of the simplicity of this gospel, of the good news that we received. Hallelujah, all of us that confess the Lord Jesus. And it goes like this. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Now I want you to listen to that last part. Now I'm happy all the day. Is there anybody this morning that would encourage themselves in the Lord and allow that revelation and the light of the salvation of the gospel of truth in your heart to come forth upon your face and countenance? Is there anybody this morning that would allow that truth to lift up their countenance this morning? Hallelujah. And be encouraged in the Lord. Let's sing that one more time. Oh, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart, it rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. This morning. Are we happy this morning in the Lord? Praise the Lord. That's right. I tell you what, it was there by faith that we received the ability to see into eternity. Praise God. That one day we will know as we're known. And we have this eternal hope in us. Hallelujah. And that's why we live. And that's why we can have a spring in our step. And that's why we can look unto the one who authored our salvation before the foundation of the world and called us for good works in Jesus. And it all started at the cross. Hallelujah. Well, praise the Lord this morning. I've got so many things rolling in my heart. I'm going to need the Holy Ghost to help me get them out. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. Okay. Help me, Holy Spirit. Let's just look to God in prayer. Father, thanking you for another opportunity to be before you. To be a living sacrifice, Father. Oh, God, consider 
How great a love wherewith you love us, O God, that we might be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you so much for your love, O God. God, would you bring the light this morning? Would you turn on the light, O God, in a dark recesses, Father of our soul, to bring illumination, understanding, Father God, of how much we're loved, of such a great hope and salvation that exists inside of us, O God. And for those that don't know it, O God, that, Father, they'll see plainly and the veil will be removed from their eyes and heart, O God. And they'll respond to your invitation that's always yes and amen for your life and for your promises, O God, to be established in their lives. Thank you for the precious Holy Spirit, the precious one who was given to us as a down payment, as an inheritance. Hallelujah. As the innkeeper who is the one that is tending and keeping to our needs until you return, Lord Jesus. Thank you, O God, for that. And I just praise you for revelation. I praise you for diverse understanding this morning, for streams of, of, of revelation, wisdom, and knowledge this morning. In your knowledge, in your understanding, in Jesus' name. All glory and honor be unto you, Father. And that Jesus would be exalted to the highest place. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, last week we talked about, we started a uh, teaching on God's living temple, us. God's living temple, us. We talked a little bit about some things that we spent some time on that I didn't anticipate spending so much time on. And that was what we were created for and the fact that we were created, right? Does anyone remember a little bit of math we talked about last week about the odds of us being uh, derived by happenstance or by chance? Can anyone recall what that probability was? That through time and the law of probability, we might somehow by chance come into a being? Let me just refresh your memory that it was one chance in one times 10 to the 340 million power. And, you know, I talked to Han, who's a mathematician. I mean, Han majored in math. I mean, he's one of those weird guys. We got another weird guy, too, I learned about this week. His name is Toby, and he's an organic chemist. And he's not just an organic chemist. He's a professor of organic chemistry. Dear Lord. So I got those two guys that can help keep me on the straight and narrow from a factual and scientific standpoint. Brothers, help me out. I talked to Han, and Han just said, bottom line is, when you start getting up into the trillions, man, we just forget it. We forget talking about possibilities. And, you know, really, I was telling you that mathematicians say that once it gets in in one chance times, or one over one times 10 to the 50th power, they consider it an impossibility. So I think one chance in one times 10 to the 340 million power exceeds that by quite a bit, doesn't it? (laughs) And that is the chance that we could come into existence uh, merely by chance. And we talked about this, this truth. It's not just a fact because it's an eternal thing. The truth is that we were created by living God in his image. 
for a purpose. And it wasn't to come down here and to fulfill some sadistic, weird role from his perspective as we're acting out some grand soap opera for his entertainment. I'm going to put my gum right there. Don't let me forget about it. We weren't put down here because God is some egotistical maniac that can't get enough and needs another stroke every day of praise and glory. Remember that? We talked about that. We weren't put down here because God's a lonely person. He, we, you know, we can go to the scripture and see that he said, let us, let us make man in our image. So he was plural to begin with. And plus there's a lot of other created beings around the throne all the time. Holy, 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 holy. As yet another revelation of his greatness is revealed. That's going on even right now as we talk. And that's destined for us, brother. <laughs> Hallelujah. But we talked about the absolute truth that we were created for a purpose. And we talked about the truth that, you know, creations aren't just something that happened, that's happenstance. We talked about the fact that God's ultimate desire for us is this one thing. We can think of many reasons why we exist and we ask that question. But really it comes down to one thing. It comes down to the fact that we were to be the objects of love himself. The objects of his affection. The apple of his eye. And I don't know about you this morning, but that gives me hope. That stirs my heart and my soul with just a little bit of warm fuzzy to think that I have someone that is so powerful that he exists outside of my time and dimension. That he is an eternal being that created me an eternal being in his image for one purpose because he wanted to have relationship with me. And if that doesn't stir up a little bit of hope this morning, I don't know what else I can do. I don't know what other truth can be proclaimed except this, that it meant so much to him that even though man screwed it up to begin with, that he already had a plan for redemption, to re, to buy back the potential for man to be restored again back into that recipient, uh, that reciprocal love with him, back into being able to walk with him in the cool of the day in the spirit now versus what it was in the garden experience. And that create, or that ability came by way of him actually sacrificing himself, giving the greatest thing that was ever given, and that was his son Jesus. And folks, with my, with every breath within me, I will proclaim the greatness of his, of his love. And you know, that's what John 3.16, that, that so many of, so many churches and no matter what denomination will gravitate to and praise God for that because it is one truth that is so simple, but yet so profound. It is for God so loved. For God so loved. And I got to tell you this morning, your soul can be anchored in that truth this morning. Your soul can be redeemed unto that truth this morning and be buoyed up in hope.
And we talked about, you know, the definitive synopsis that the Apostle Paul brought forth in Acts chapter 17. Just listen to what this says, verse 24 through 27. It says, the God who made the world and everything in the in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. But yet I want to stop just a minute here and consider the fact that after the fall of man, God had no choice but to relegate his presence to temples made by human hands up to Jesus. He had no choice. But that, that he's talking about the eternal, the eternal destiny. The eternal desire of God was not to dwell in temples or tabernacles made of human hands. And that's what we're talking about, God's living temple, us. Let's go on in verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. That's him telling us right there, I really don't need humans. When it comes right down to the final analysis, I really don't need you from a perspective of helping me out with things. Yet how many times do we offer our members to help out God? You know, I can think about one great example. His name was Abraham or Abram. He tried to help out God and he ended up with an Ishmael. I'll just leave you, leave that there to stew a little bit. It's no different today, folks. We have to depend and do what God's asked us to do and look to him to, to deliver and manifest the promise, not by our hand, but by his doing and grace in us. Rather, he himself, going on in verse 25, Acts chapter 17, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, verse 26, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. I'm going to stop for just a minute and just say how tremendously awesome, what kind of a privilege is it to consider that God appointed a time? He scribed out a moment in this history for our existence. That means that he planned for you to exist. He planned for the place that your dwelling would exist in this time that we understand that he's scribed out in eternity for us to exist in. God did this in verse 27, and here's the reason why we're made. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. I love this scripture because there's not an end to this of the toil of man in his search for God because there is a fruit or a reward for those that would seek him, and that is to find him. My goodness, if we're not going to find him, why would we search for him if there's no hope? But I'm telling you this morning that there is hope to find him, and that's why God made you. That perhaps those would reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. (laughs) Hallelujah. I love that. I love that, though he is not far. So we started to move into this concept a little bit. Before the fall, God walked with man. We can see that in Genesis. He communed with him face to face on all levels, spirit, soul, and body. 
We know that right after the fall, it said that God, the father comes down into the garden and he's walking in the cool of the day. And he even is like calling out to his man, Adam, where are you at, Adam, Eve, where are y'all at? So we know that there was a precedent of that taking place before God comes down to walk in the garden. He must have done that all the time. Can you imagine the father God coming down in your house? We talked about this last week. And I have to correct, or I have to leave you with a different thought than what I left you with last week, and that is that my house isn't always plagued with rotting tomatoes and dog poop in the yard. You have to understand that I was just trying to bring out some things for illustrative purposes. I received a very strong rebuke when I got home. Brother, you know my heart. I wasn't trying to make light of things that are actual. I was just trying to bring reality to the situation. Sometimes you say things, though, as men, and, and you don't engage your brain when you say them. Yeah, and all them women said. But after the fall, God's presence was manifest in vessels and dwellings made by man with his instructions. You know, the Mosaic Tabernacle, we talked about that for just a little bit. In Exodus chapter 25, 31, that was the first dwelling, if you will, of the resident presence of God with man again after the fall. And the central figure of that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And we talked about how that was made such a a tremendous uh, icon, you know, in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Everybody knows about the Ark of the Covenant. Whatever you do, don't open the lid. Well, them old boys found out about that, didn't they? Whew. And that ark was the heart of the focused presence of God with man in the tabernacle. It contained the tablets of the covenant law. It was the final, in the final building place or resting place, if you will, of Mosaic tabernacle was in Gibeah in the promised land after they went in. It was basically instituted there. And the ark, but here's the problem. The ark and the presence of God, eventually because of a complacent priest named Eli who did not honor God above everything else, lost the presence of God from the camp. Lost it. We're going to talk about that just a little bit. But before we do, let's talk about another tabernacle. It was the tabernacle of David. And I've got to tell you about David's tabernacle this morning. There's not just a tremendous amount of scripture to give you the fine detail of David's tabernacle. But there's enough scripture and prophecy that's brought forth that talks about the purpose of it and why it even existed. And I've got to tell you that this tabernacle was not one that was erected of legal observance. It was one that was erected of a heart that desired the presence of the living God above all else. Not just a heart that would invoke the presence through legalistic observances, but a heart that would invoke the presence of the praises of a person that honored him above all else. Unlike Eli, who was just a a tremendous uh, illustration of what happens whenever we dishonor the Lord, when we lightly esteem his presence. 
how it leaves our midst and literally can be subject to the captivity of enemies. I know people looking at me cross-eyed when I say that, but we're going to talk about that. The David's tabernacle was erected in a different place. He didn't go to Gibeah and say, boys, let's restore what you got going here. No, he went with his heart in, in, in bringing the, te- the tabernacle, the next phase of the tabernacle's existence into the reality of really, or the centrality of the covenant city of God, Jerusalem. Right up into the middle. The nexus, the connections of everything made, spirit, soul, and body at that time, if you will. He erected it in Jerusalem. He constructed it without courts, without inner chambers, folks. There was not like all these different courts and outer courts and inner courts and all the furniture and then the, the big, uh, you know, veil. There was none of that. It was an open format. And David then went and brought back the ark, which represents the presence of the living God. Because I got to tell you this morning, it doesn't make any difference what we construct, folks, and how we go about building it in the name. And we can build it all in the name of God. But if the presence of the Lord isn't there, it makes no difference. We have to have the presence of the Lord with us. Or it makes no difference. So he brings back the ark and he institutes 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 and a quarter days of the year, worship and praise around that ark. It was literally the praises of people that created the habitable potential, not the sacrifices, not the legal observance. Folks, if you look at the Mosaic tabernacle, you'll see that... All the events and leading up to being able to actually penetrate and exist in the presence of the living God in front of that ark, which only happened really one time of a year. And it was only one person that could go in, the high priest. And the only way that he could go in there was through making sure that he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the of the law in terms of what it took to enter that presence or he would be struck dead. But yet I've got to tell you, to stand in direct opposite of that, or as a dichotomy to that picture, we see David coming in here. He didn't visit with God face to face and get a, a, a pattern for the tabernacle that he built. His tabernacle was a tabernacle of his heart. Can you all see that? His tabernacle was one that was born of the life of God and desire for his presence. And if you don't believe me, listen to what David says in Psalms 27. The majority of the Psalms really having been written and come out of the prophetic messages and the praises and the Psalms that were written in the presence of the Lord in the David's tabernacle experience. That's where a lot of Psalms came from by a lot of theologians believe. Listen to what Psalms 27, 4 says. One thing have I desired of the Lord. This one thing I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There's his heart. 
There's his heart. And this is why I believe that David was allowed to produce and render the presence of the Lord in that tabernacle that had no, really no relation to the Mosaic tabernacle, was not created in the legalistic observance to fulfill every jot and tittle of what God had said about the design of the tabernacle. Because guess what? It was the heart of David. It was the heart of David. I feel like that David really had that inner yearning inside of him that we're talking about now. And that is the realization that really God wanted to be inside of us and not in one made by human hands. But yet he knew that it could not happen. I think it was one of those things that he knew, but he didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Because his heart was pure before the living God. Here's the, here's the thing that unites both of these tabernacle experiences. They were not permanent. They were tents, folks. How many of us ever lived in tent for a little bit? Oh yeah, man, I love to, I love to go camping. I love to go, uh, you know, take my tent out, throw it up under the stars, have me a campfire going, eat me some s'mores and some hot dogs and, you know, all that good camp food. I love to to live in tents, but I got to tell you, I don't want to live in one all the time. I don't want to live in one when it's, you know, 11 below outside and I got ice crystals hanging off my structures. And some other things too. I got to ask you this morning, do you think a tent is good, was good enough for the living God? If it ain't good enough for us, folks, it ain't good enough for the living God. David desired to build God a permanent dwelling, a temple. See, David's heart knew this. David was like, oh, dear Lord, the living God who lives up inside of me or comes upon me and that I, whose reality I know and move under as his hand comes upon me. And who I have known since my youth and have honored and have loved and esteemed above all else. Oh, dear God, that I would dwell in your house. Oh, dear God, that you would not be out here in a tent, but that we could create a a dwelling for you, a permanent dwelling. You know, David's heart was in the right place, but his mind was not. (laughs) His heart was in the right place because I think it was one of those inner things within him. I think he knew, but he didn't know. And so he would just go with the best thing he could think of, and that was to create a palace for God's presence. And that's a wonderful goal. That's a wonderful thought. He esteemed God above all else and wanted him to have a lot better place than a tent to to dwell in. His son Solomon would, would actually carry this out because God had to talk with David. And he gave, he honored David's heart and he gave him the plan for the temple. But he told him, David, I haven't anointed you to do this. You know, he anointed David's hand for war. He anointed David to do the things he did, the exploits for his kingdom. But he said, I will honor your progeny, your, your sons. And then your son is going to build this. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to bless you with the concept of the plans of it so you can see what it's going to be like. You can get the vision of it and you'll translate that vision to your son, Solomon. 
is who, who eventually got that, those plans. So David's heart was right. He received instructions, yes, for a much more substantial dwelling. However, it was not still God's ultimate desire. And David didn't understand that God desired to get back to the intimate communion that he had with man by dwelling inside of him. That's what God wanted. How much more closely can you get to someone? How much more closely can you get to someone than to get up inside of them? Than to know their thoughts. To know their ways. To to be within them not just an idea, but a living being. A living person. To commune with them internally. You know, to me, one of the greatest pictures of unity is marriage. Should be. That which was two would become one. And really, God's presence goes beyond that. Because I don't know about you all, but my wife don't come up inside of me. She does more than any person in this face of this planet. You all know what I'm saying? She is in my heart. But I've got to say, she doesn't dwell inside of me. See, there's a, there's a finite ability for us, for our intimacy. There's not with someone that can come up inside and live inside of you. And that's what God desired. That's what God desires. David honored God with his desire to provide God's presence with the greatest house of all, the expense of which was founded only on man's basis of valuation. And made with things that are not eternal. See, that's the difference. We're eternal beings. We're created in his likeness. And because our God is eternal, we are created eternal. We'll live on forever, whether you believe that or not, folks. The word of God is very clear that we're created after his image. Spirit, soul, and body. And every part of us are bodied to be last in terms of how it is redeemed unto that eternality. It's all eternal, eventually. And what the choices we make, the lives we live now, dictate where we're going to live in that eternity. That's the scripture. Luke 21, 5 says, And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, this is in front of Jesus, so we can see them talking, man. They, they, they made great, you know, talk about the temple. How wonderful it was. Think about the temple of Solomon and all of its splendor and precious value. And you know, I don't know if anyone has ever really looked up the valuation of Solomon's temple. But did you realize there are some, you know, theologians have taken the measurements that are in, of the gold and the measurements of silver. That are in the Old Testament. And they, they're very finite and can be equated to current measurements that we can understand. It was around 8 million pounds of gold. And the silver was around 75 million pounds of silver. That's one estimate. So just the gold and silver, if you were to take that, would blow your mind if you put those numbers in a calculator and multiply them times today's values for those per ounce. How much is gold worth per ounce now? Probably a thousand dollars at least or more. It was as high as what, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars an ounce. 
They're 16 ounces in a pound. And I just said to over 8 million pounds. So do the math. Come on, Han, what is that? I've seen estimates for over a quarter of a trillion dollars. And that's just for the gold and silver and some of the precious jewels. It doesn't, that doesn't include all the cedars of Lebanon, all the precious wood that was brought into that, all the artistry. If you were just to pay the bill alone for the craftsmanship that went into the temple, that wasn't even, that hasn't even been calculated that I could find. You know how much it costs to build a house now? It's unbelievable. And a good chunk of that is labor, right? It's labor. It's the craftsmanship you're paying for. It's not just the raw material. Boy, if we could get away for just paying for something a little bit for the craftsmanship and then the bulk of your cost was the materials, oh, man, it'd be cheap to build a house. Pretty cheap. But you're paying for labor. And back then, you know, they they had tens of thousands of people work to build that temple. So they didn't even calculate that, the labor value. And I've seen just the raw materials alone, I've seen estimates of, of two, like 250 some billion dollars. That's unbelievable. I mean, that's, 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 that's money that you just can't even comprehend. But yet I've got to stand here before you and God and proclaim the truth. And that is that even Solomon's temple in all of its splendor and its precious value, it does not equate even close to the value of any single person sitting in this room. You know why? And I can share this truth to you with all the power the Holy Ghost would give me to bring an understanding unto your soul. It's because Jesus didn't give himself for a temple. Jesus didn't come down here and die and give and sow his life into this ground for the precious substances of this world. He came down here for every single person that sits in this room and that has ever existed in this world and ever will exist. Yes, hallelujah. And he, he told, he was praying for his disciples before he left and he said, Oh dear God, would you let them know that you have loved them as you have loved me? So to sit here and say that and marvel at the valuation of Solomon's temple and consider it to be this grandiose thing that God would inhabit, but yet the truth of the matter is that he created each and every one of us to be the living tabernacles of his presence. Because that was his ultimate desire. Because we are more precious than silver. More precious than gold. We're as precious as the precious ounce of the blood of Jesus Christ. That represents his life. Folks, I got to tell you, I don't think we understand that or we would be dancing right now. Help us, Holy Ghost. I'm talking about me too. Help us, Holy Spirit. God didn't give his son for gold, silver, and precious stones, but for the very pinnacle of his creation, and that was us. So the temple of old, though, folks, is really a type and a shadow of the reality of God's desired temple, us. And you can see over in Colossians 3.16, it says, Know ye not. That ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. That's a question this morning. 
And that's a question that was given unto a New Testament church. And that is a question that still applies right now because we live as a, a part of the New Testament church age. And I want you to listen to those words again. And I would say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this morning, know you not that you are the temple. Do you not know? Let's put it in a different way. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Jesus spoke clearly about the replacement of the old temple with the new, the supplanting of it. And notice Jesus, the very presence of the living God with us, El Shaddai, was declaring the real reason for the temple. Not that it's it's mere existence as the place of God, if you will, for religious exercise, but a location for communion with him. And if you can see in Matthew 12, 6, it says, just listen to what it says, Matthew 12, 6. But I say unto you that in the, this place is one greater than the temple. And they were standing there in front of the temple. And he's talking to his disciples and he said, I tell you that there is one greater than the temple that stands here. And notice in verse 7, he said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. See, he's talking about the, the relationship that we would have unto God is not one of legalistic observance that they were putting such an emphasis on and that they had only known in terms of being able to have an access unto God. But that because the one that was greater than the temple that stood before them that would destroy that temple and then raise up a new one in three days later, hallelujah, would create the potential for us to serve him of our own accord and with our own lives as the sacrifice and not that blood of bulls and goats and not that wheat and the other things that were burned before him as incense, but it would be our praises. It would be our worship that would come up before him in the middle of his living temple that could be offered at any time that by that blood would give us access into the very presence of the Holy of Holies. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord God Almighty. And then I, I went ahead there, but in Mark fourteen fifty eight, it says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And within three days, I'll build another one made without hands. We just talked about that. So Jesus' death brought about the transition of God's presence from the temple of human construction to that of his building, us. Hallelujah. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. And behold, the veil of the temple, <laughs> it was rent in twain. It was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks were broken in two. And folks, this happened whenever Jesus cried and breathed his last and said, it is finished. At that point in time, every stone came apart from a a positional standpoint as far as us having to work through legalistic observance to achieve an entrance and access into his presence. And it became an open tabernacle at all times before him. It became a place that, that entered our hearts if we would accept it and be rebuilt in that. Just like David's tabernacle sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? The presence of God, his spirit left the Holy of Holies at that point in time to await movement to his final dwelling place, 
us. Can you imagine, folks? Can you imagine the breath of heaven at that point in time? I I can only imagine a a collective inhalation, a... (gasps) As the presence of the living God left what it had known and was the only way and construct for men to approach him, to go to its eternal destiny again, back in the heart of man. I can only imagine that all the the creation at that point in time up in heaven, there was a collective gasp as as that temple curtain was rent in two from top to bottom and the presence of the living God then became an open face solution unto man's problems. An open face reality unto man's desires. Unto his fellowship. So we can learn many things. From the Old Testament regarding how not to treat his, the presence of God in our lives. If we are, if this is true and we are the temple of the living God, then it's important to know a couple things as it results us carrying that presence. Amen? So again, remember that we are the temple. We now contain the ark, the presence of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, you can see about a story. And it's about what we talked about in terms of the ark actually being captured. And it was because of a an indiscriminate, un, or dishonoring action of a, of a high priest and allowing his sons to leverage the presence of the God, of the living God from their midst to go move it into battle and do something with it that was not called to be done. That the presence of the living God and his power was actually taken captive. And I could go into that story and spend some time there, but I'm not going to. We're going to move on. And the thing is, though, folks, the ark is representative of the presence of God, the anointing. And what happened was is that the that Phineas and Hophni, they took that ark of the living God because they were fighting. They were fighting the Philistines, and they brought it out in front of them thinking that they were going to leverage the power of God for their own exploits. And it ended up being captured. They got defeated and both of them killed and the armies killed. And they got that, they lost the power and presence of the living God and it went to go inhabit another temple under its captivity. It was the temple of Dagon. The people tried to leverage the hand of God as they would have it. They tried to leverage his presence as they would have it as an attempt to deal with circumstances in their lives. God operates independent of circumstance. He operates in accordance with his will and his plan only. And here's the deal, folks. God is not just an option that whenever we reach the end of our capacity, we're going to try. But yet I think that that's our our position sometimes. It's we'll take care of it, God, until we reach an impasse of our abilities and then we'll look to you. But I got to tell you, it's every day, every moment you're walking this out as the temple of the living God with the greater, with the hope of Christ inside of you who gives you an ability above what you can't do. It gives you an eternal destiny if you'll follow it and be open to it. He's not plan B. He's not plan C. He's not plan G. He is the plan A. And that's the only plan there is for our lives that we should be pursuing, that we should be going after 
He's not a bottled genie that we can release at our whim. Oh, dear God, it's time now. I've got to manifest your presence in order to handle this situation. Manifest on our behalf. But I think that's how we look at God sometimes. I really do. I think that we live so much of our lives in this soul and not from a spiritual standpoint where the reality of God's presence really is. And then when we come to the place that things pass our, or that are limited by our understanding, then all of a sudden we relegate ourselves unto God. But it's, then it's a situation that we're trying to leverage Him and manifest Him at our will and not His. Manifest Him at our, with our plan and our desire. Oh God, you gotta do this. God, you got to do this now. I'm going to take a few moments extra. I, I really intend to be done at 1145, but I'm going to take just a few minutes. Is that okay? I'm very mindful of wanting to be done at 1145, and I was done by 1147 last week. So when we try to push or conduct the things of God according to our agenda, we subject ourselves to defeat. We subject ourselves to judgment. And folks, we subject ourselves to the living hope and the power that can actually move us through circumstances in victory to the enemy's camp. I got to tell you, it's a, it's a type and a shadow what we see. People say, oh, dear Lord, no. What are you saying the Holy Ghost leaves you? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying positionally you put yourself in that place. Positionally you put yourself in that place. The ark should have never left the temple. But the one responsible, the high priest Eli, he continued to honor his son, something else over God. And so i got to ask the question this morning, is there anything in our lives that we honor more than God? If there is, folks, then there's a a potential for this to happen. Religion itself can take the preeminence over God, too. That's the sorry thing about this, folks. We, doing the things for the kingdom of God in the name of God, can do things that would subject the plan of God to something else. And that's our desire instead of His. So we can take the preeminence over God whom the action should be serving to please and seek and to follow. And just like Eli's sons, we can try to leverage the presence of God in our routines. We can try to leverage his abilities and our doctrines through our agendas, through our styles, through our traditions. And in doing so, we can subject the very presence of the living God that's inside of us, his anointing in our lives, our families, our church, to capture, to control, to manipulation. You know, and in 1 Samuel 5, it talks about that story a little bit more. And it talks about the ark housed in another temple, the enemy's camp, where the enemy tries to control. And we see the enemy can't control the presence of God. But it can go to no effect in our lives, though, folks, just like it did for them back then. You see what I'm saying? You can render it to no effect. But i got to show you a picture of the awesomeness. In verses 1-4, through it chronicles the result of an attempt by the enemy to contain the presence of God. There is nothing going to contain the presence of the living God. Though it might come in, and though it might be subjected, and though it might be brought in the middle of all the rest of everything else that's going on in order to keep to try to leverage its power for its own use and intent, the God, that little God, God little G, will fall. We saw that picture happen, happen twice. That, that deal, that Dagon, his... 
his effigy. You know, that statue fell once, and the next time it fell, his head and arms broke off. A lot of prophetic symbology there that I don't have time to go into. You cannot contain the Holy Ghost. Whatever we may subject him to in our lives will fall, folks. We need to examine our lives to see what we're subjecting the Holy Spirit to. I mean, we're moving as the ark of the living God through this world. What are we subjecting the presence of the living God to? Are we in our inability or or lack of desire or lack of esteem or lack of honor for the presence of God inside of us subjecting the members of Christ into another's camp? Under control? Unto repression of that power in your life? Your life is the temple of God. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3.10. In the measure of the grace given to me, I, as a wise master builder, have put the base in position. And another goes on building on it. But let every man take care of what he puts in it. Talking about the tabernacle of God, us. Verse 11. For there is no other base for the building but that which has been put down, and that is Jesus Christ. No other base, folks. You want to test the spirits? It's very simple. I don't really know if this is of God or not. I don't really know if this is a spirit or or of the word of God or whatever. You test it very simply this way. Does the result of that end up in glorifying Jesus as the as the true son of God, the only son of God begotten of him and the only way unto him, God? If it does not, trash can it. If it does not, trash can it. There is no other base but Christ. And then verse 12, but on the base, a man may put gold, silver, stones of great price, wood, dry grass, cut stems. That's telling you folks that we, that's, that's a picture of our lives as the temple of the living God that we build through the things that we do that Steve was talking about. Things that when we get in, when we crack the sky and end up in eternal destiny at that point in time, that we're going to have revealed as to their eternal worth or not. Whether it's a reward or not, or whether it was wood, hay, and stubble. And notice, folks, that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people that have the living hope inside them. He's talking to the living, breathing tabernacles of the living God now, who has the foundation of Jesus Christ and has other eternal things built on that. But notice that it says, but on the base, a man may put gold. A man may put gold. That man is talking about each and every one of us. You may put gold. You may put silver. You may put stones of great price. But you can also put wood, dry grass, and cut stems. And in verse 13, every man's work will be made clear in that day because it will be tested by fire. And the fire itself will make clear the quality of every man's work. We're going to close with this. The Holy Spirit revealed something to me I've never seen before. Do you know that there is a pleasing incense that comes from the burning of wood, hay, and stubble? It's just the time at which that takes place. And I'm talking about this. We are to be a living sacrifice now. In this age, while we live in this physical body, 
while we have the, our, our conscious decisions to make for God? Will we offer up the wood, hay, and stubble of our lives as a sacrament that when his fire of the Holy Ghost and truth touch it, that it will bring up to him a sweet-smelling savor? Right now, folks, is the time that wood, hay, and stubble being sacrificed and burned before God is an essence of, of fragrance that he loves. Because it is us laying down our suke, laying down our worldly mind, will, and emotions, putting them down on the altar, on the altar, just like Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he's talking about his suke life there, not his spiritual life. He's talking about his ability to decide for himself how he's going to live, what he's going to do, what he's going to set for goals, his agendas, his drives and desires and purposes. He's talking about laying that down. And I tell you, there's never a better picture than my master to look at when it comes to laying down the wood, hay, and stubble and putting it on that altar for the spirit of God's fire to burn as incense before God, before him. There's another time, though, that the fire will burn up wood, hay, and stubble, and it's not a pleasing aroma. It's just going to be a pile of ash. And it even says going on in this scripture that there'll be some that whenever their their life, the, the totality of what their life really stood for, in terms of what they spent their time building upon that foundation through the Spirit of God and through the plans and designs that He's called forth, what you ended up building in this earth, whether, you know, it's, it's gold and silver and precious stem, precious uh, gems, or whether it's the stems of hay and wood and stubble, that whenever that's tried at the end times, and it's a big poof, it says there are those that will escape as coming through the flames and going, oh man, woo, I made it. Because the totality of what their life represents was a big Poof. And that will not be a sweet smelling savor. That will not be an aroma pleasing unto God. So we have two opportunities here. Same thing. Fire to wood, hay and stubble. Will we allow right now our agendas to be put down? Will we as Christ who said, no man takes my life from me. And just like he said, said that about himself, I say, you can say that about yourself. No man can take your life. Stephen, I can't demand your life be made, you know, available for my purposes. I can't make you. You see what I'm saying? You have to willingly offer your life. You have to put it down. Every Everybody in here, I'm not just pointing Stephen out, I'm just pointing him out because he's a good brother and he's, he's a good sport. <laughs> we have to lay our lives down just like Jesus said. No man takes it from me. I lay it down. And I just want to leave you with those words. Will we lay it down so that the aroma of our sacrifice would come up into our Father? Our temple, would it fill our temple with the sweet smell and savor that our God like, uh, desires to smell right now? And that's the smell of someone offering their life for his purpose. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you for letting me go a few, a few minutes longer here. Father, we just praise and honor your name, God. God, would you reveal to us, give us more light, oh God, about really 
what we are, whose we are, about the, the absolute truth that we are created in your image and that we're created to be a habitation of the living God and to carry his presence. Oh, God, would you, would you just give us an understanding, oh, Lord, of how precious that is. And, Father, how we need to live our lives, Lord God, in a manner that is indeed fearful of the living God knowing that we carry your presence with us wherever we go and that we would not dishonor you in any way or, Father God, do anything, Father, that would subject your presence, Father God, unto the enemy, unto other plans, unto our own desires. That, Father God, we would do your plan and your purpose, Father, and pursue that. That we would walk, Father God, as David did, Lord, with with open face at all times, desiring one thing, that we would dwell in your presence at all times. And that we would know as we're known, Father God, even as much as we can in this day and age, Father, that we are the temple of the living God. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Father God, that there is no demon in hell. There's no Dagon that would exist now that would try to rise its place above that of the convictions of the people that would say, "Uh uh-uh, not my will, but that of the fathers. Uh Uh-uh, no one takes my life, but I give it down. I lay my life down. My life is a temple of the presence and the power of the living God. Hallelujah. And it will not be controlled. And I thank you, Father God, for those things that have, have tried to move in and put a lid upon the anointing. Father God, in these people's lives, in this church, Father God, we say, break it. We say, fall in the name of Jesus. We say, Father God, return, return, oh God, our hearts, Lord, unto your purpose and plan, Father. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. 